Happy Father's Day. So uh, I was going to uh, Greensboro this past week to uh, the General Assembly, which is the gathering of elders and pastors uh, from our uh, tribe of the Presbyterian Church in America. And I was going down with uh, Reuben, and Reuben asked me a question that I didn't get a chance to fully answer, but he asked me, you know, what was it that influenced me to, to become a pastor and to do the kind of ministry that we've been about for the last almost four decades? Uh, this picture, which is rather fuzzy, uh, actually is a huge part of that reason and that foundation. So uh, <clears throat> this is... 1965, August 1965, and uh, I am the character out of character, uh, the little kid in the hat that's not a Boy Scout hat. Uh, my, my older brother, who's 13 months older, Chuck, is in the back row about the fourth from the, or yeah, about the fourth from the, the right. And the man standing on the far left is my dad. Uh, my dad uh, basically told my brother and I we had two choices uh, that we could make. We could either play baseball, do a sport, or do Boy Scouts. And then my dad became the Scoutmaster. So it was pretty well determined that we were going to be Boy Scouts. Uh, but. This might just look like a normal Boy Scout troop. It's 1965. I didn't think it was anything unusual. There are three young youths in that picture who are African American. Uh, they were the Dorsey brothers. And I remember my dad uh, would regularly uh, be picking them up and taking them home. And just being in the car with, uh, with, these, with these young men. And this was 1965, so Boy Scouts could have been a segregated institution, uh, and it was in many places. And I knew that later on that there were parents in, of other young boys in that troop that did not want this troop to be integrated. My dad was just being my dad. Uh, he pursued a life of, uh, of justice and mercy uh, and equity uh, just as part of who he was as a man of God. Uh, and I will tell you that probably without having the kind of dad that God gave me, I would not be a pastor or to be a pastor in this kind of uh, a ministry. It's been a huge, huge resource of strength. And I, I would say that probably for everyone in this house that has experienced the faithfulness and the strong character of a loving, faithful dad. And my father's been married to my mother, I guess, like 70 years now. Uh, it's a huge uh, inheritance of strength. Uh, for those that have found a huge wound in your heart, uh, and Father's Day is often a day where those wounds become more uh, prominent, I want you to know that you have an eternal father who loves you to the very depths. And uh, he's given you a family of spiritual dads uh, in this house uh, that love you uh, very deeply. And we want to be part of that journey with you, a journey of healing. 
Well, welcome to Faith. Welcome to our uh, message series in the chapters of Revelation, the early chapters as we're examining uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in the seven cities of Asia Minor. Uh, this slide of these, uh, this is, uh, these churches were located in what is today Turkey on the, uh, the west area of Turkey, and uh, those particular next slide shows you the circuit upon which this letter that started from the island of Patmos, which was where uh, John the Apostle had written these letters uh, from uh, his revelation from Jesus Christ, first to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, which we have uh, reviewed in the last several weeks. Well, today we'll be looking at the letter uh, to Sardis and uh, to Philadelphia. And these letters were written really because Jesus Christ is passionate for his church. He's passionate for his church in the various cities. He's passionate for the church in Baltimore, and he's passionate for the church of Faith Christian Fellowship. Uh, we have wondered, what would Jesus say if he were to write a letter uh, to this church as he's walking around the lampstand of Faith Christian Fellowship? Uh, what would be his encouragements and comforts? What would be his corrections and challenges? Well, Jesus is still walking around his church, uh, his bride uh, here, and he has words for us. He speaks to us, and actually at the end of every single one of the letters, it gives a general appeal. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so let us consider what the Spirit is saying to us individually, but also to us corporately. The words of Jesus to the church of Sardis in Philadelphia, starting with verse 1 in chapter 3. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and that is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and, and they, wo they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say, that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my, new, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that you give us uh, these words. Lord, as we listen to these words, uh, there are words of comfort and there's words of encouragement, but there's also words of hard correction. Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you that you are a great physician. Uh, Lord, as a surgeon, uh, you come into our lives and you address those things that need to be uh, dealt with the cancer in our lives. And so, God, we pray that you would do your work of surgery even in this house, uh, that you, through your word, God, you would, uh, you would use uh, your word as that double-edged sword uh, to cut but also to heal. And so, Lord, we commit uh, our ears to you and the, our hearts as we look at this passage now in Jesus' name. Amen. About seven years ago, uh, Pastor Stan and I attended uh, a meeting of pastors and elders, uh, which we call the Presbytery, and I heard a testimony from a man by the name of Bill Hiller, who was promoting a, uh, a ministry to women uh, coming out of human uh, trafficking. Uh, he spoke as one with deep personal experience of the profound losses and pain and trauma of that atrocious industry because his own teenage daughter, Sally, was abducted and forced into the sex industry in 1988 while traveling in a foreign country with her high school class. I remember his tears as he shared about how his daughter was tragically murdered. But Bill Hiller came before us more than a grieving father. He was a retired Army colonel, decorated special Delta Force operative who served in hot spots around the world and went on an, to earn a Ph.D. in educational health. He was given a hero's welcome in many cities and towns and received honorary doctorate degrees. Bill Hiller came before us also as an ex-CIA officer whose experience provided the plot in the Hollywood movie Taken starring Liam Neeson about the CIA agent who was seeking to rescue his own daughter. And everything that I have just shared with you about Bill Hiller was a lie. <laughs> A few weeks after that amazing, powerful testimony, uh, the stories came out and the reports came out that it was all fabricated, all made up, a hoax, which was a horrible distraction from the terrible realities that are actually happening in human trafficking around the world, and also a distraction from the esteeming of those many devoted fathers who truly loved and sacrificed for their daughters and sons. But I remember being stunned at the news and realizing once again that things are not always what they seem. As we turn to Revelation 3 and Christ's specific words to the church of Sardis, we are reminded here that 
things are not always what they seem in the church. Jesus says to the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. I know your words, works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have a name for being alive. You are thought to have all these things going on about you, but they are all an image that's a facade. And in all the churches that we have seen so far, Christ often begins by affirming and recognizing the good in the churches. Uh, the Ephesians couldn't tolerate wicked men. The Smyrna's were faithful in persecution. The Pergamums remained true to Christ's name. The Thyatirans had deeds of love and faith. What good did Christ commend when he came to the church of Sardis? Nothing. The only good was their good reputation, which was all hype and all smoke. Christ's verdict on her was devastatingly brief. She was dead. When we compare Christ's words to Sardis, to the words that he gave to the church of Philadelphia, we see a great contrast in the picture of Sardis. Jesus had only wonderful, great things to say about the Philadelphia church. We mainly hear encouragements from Christ. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. You patiently endured. But in his words to Philadelphia, we also see a challenge. We see a command. Jesus calls them to obey. He says, Behold, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And the expectation is that they are to see and perceive and to see this open door, to give focus and thought to it and go through it. But I wonder what would happen to the Church of Philadelphia if they did not behold, if they did not give focus thought to and, to, and if they did not keep practicing the bold faith to go through the open door that God gives, could it be that the church of Philadelphia is a picture of the church of Sardis in its former authentic spiritual glory and vitality? Could it be that the church of Philadelphia is being tempted to stop stepping out on faith, but is being tempted to little by little withdraw from kingdom enterprises, withdraw from the practice of risky faith, to begin to rest more on its formal laurels of glory and past spiritual exploits. Without knowing it, they become a museum or a morgue of just memories without any real life. Could it be that Jesus has commanded the believers of Philadelphia to behold because they were tempted to be spiritually passive and look away. At some former period, Sardis was a spiritually healthy, formidable community. I am sure the spiritual demise didn't happen quickly or in one catastrophic event, but little by little, like the frog in the kettle, the heat of the world's pressure was almost imperceptibly being turned up until the believers in the church was slowly cooked to spiritual death or disservice in the kingdom. They didn't even know that they were almost dead. So Jesus has a similar command to both churches that is nearly comatose and the one that is being tempted to shut its eyes. 
And the command is, wake up, behold, wake up, behold. So we are going to take these two churches together as we seek to hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to the church of Sardis, but also to Philadelphia, but also to Faith Christian Fellowship. So Christ is urging the slumbering, sleepy, vision-impaired believers to wake up, to behold. Christ calls his church, he calls Faith Christian Fellowship, to be the vigilant, attentive to our dying state and to our kingdom calling. So Jesus calls us to wake up. He calls us to wake up, to strengthen, and to hold on. Wake up. Wake up first to your hypocrisy. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. There's a word in the Greek uh, that describes false appearance. It's hypocrite. That's actually the word in Greek. It's hypocrite. It comes from the Greek word hypocrites, which is the term of act for actor, or one who plays a part on stage, a pretender, a make-believer. Everybody knows that actors act, but it's hard to recognize a hypocrite. And here Jesus is that surgeon, and he tears he tears the disguise off the church of Sardis and exposes it for what they are. The church apparently put on a great show. Nobody who saw her from outside would have such an idea that it, that it was a hollow church. The last thing people would say is that she was a dead church. All the flourishing ministries, the numbers of people coming, the dynamic worship, the vibrant programs, the outreach to the community— Maybe they were even gathering a place for diverse peoples. <laughs> Anybody looking on might think, this is a happening church. And they would be shocked to hear Jesus' rebuke. Like the affluent and complacent capital city of Sardis, the church had fallen asleep and lost its way. Sardis, Sardis was this city, was a very rich and affluent city. It was built on a mountain cliff. And the city took great pride and confidence in themselves for their secure position. They were at this very uh, high position, and the only way to get into this particular city was from the south side. Uh, that was the only gate. Everything else was a huge wall of, of uh, stone. But apparently in the history of Sardis, there were two occasions where one, a single enemy man, climbed up this 1,500-foot uh, uh, incline and, uh, and opened the gate of the city and brought it to its defeat. I think of uh, what happened on Pearl Harbor uh, from the book At Dawn We Slept when there was a surprise attack against that, our vast fleet of warships. Jesus confronts the church of Sardis. He says to wake up, to take heed. Outward profession doesn't mean inward possession of Christ's spirit. A form of godliness does not mean that it has a substance of godliness. And so Jesus confronts them, and Jesus confronts us. He confronts us, and, and he, he wants us to know that it's very easy to fall into a mode of sleep. There was a science fiction movie some years ago called, ago called The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> it was an alien invasion where the alien life forms were seeking to take over planet Earth. And the means that they used to conquer human bodies, to invade human bodies, 
uh, they would remove the personality and the person would become a zombie. So it looked like Fred, but it wasn't Fred anymore. He was taken over by these aliens. And the way they invaded a person was they waited until they fell asleep. <laughs> when you fell asleep, that's when the aliens would take over your life. And the last scene of it was this boyfriend realized that his girlfriend had just been invaded and there's this picture of this guy with his bloodshot eyes and are you still awake uh, as this as the screen as it filled the screen so it's hard to sleep it's hard not to sleep but Jesus doesn't make our fight to overcome that impossible. In fact, he gives us clear and reasonable weapons to be victorious. He gives us the means to keep spiritual vigilant uh, so that we wouldn't become spiritual zombies or zombie churches that outwardly look alive but are inwardly dead. And so he gives us weapons. Here's one diagnostic question. Do to ask yourself, do I find myself caring more for what people think about me than what God thinks about me? Am I concerned about more about my reputation before others or about my reputation before God? It's a good question to ask. That has a lot of influence on what moves us and what drives us. But we also see this call to wake up, behold, God reigns. And in the church of Philadelphia... It opens with the words of the Holy One, the true one, who uh, has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And so as we think about Philadelphia, the, the, the word actually for Philadelphia, Phileo Delphia, which is city of brotherly love, and actually it was uh, the, the origins of the city were about uh, 150 A.D., where there was the ruling king of the city was a man by the name of Eumenes, and he had a brother named Attalus, and they became well-known because they became known for their love for each other, and particularly for Attalus, uh, he had a deep love for his brother Eumenes, and the report was that Eumenes was killed in war, and Attalus assumed the throne. But apparently Eumenes wasn't, killed. He was just severely wounded, and when he recovered, he returned, and Attalus was very happy to give over the throne to his brother. There was no competition. There was just deep affection for each other, and so that became the city of brotherly love, or brother lovers. So, so great was the city of Philadelphia that it had a, a church that was one that had very little that Christ found fault with. And the key word that we see is a word of faithfulness of this, of this church. But this key, the key that is focused on in verse 7, is, a, is something that he wants the church to take acknowledge of. And the key is about the sovereignty of God, about the authority of God. And in Isaiah 22, there's an allusion to this of, of a particular leader by the name of El. Eliakim. Eliakim was a steward in King Hezekiah's household, and he had this honorable position, and God gave him this authority. And it says, a father to those who live in Jerusalem, and adds, 
I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. All the glory of his family will hang on him. And we find that Eliakim really became a prefigure of Christ himself. And uh, we see that Jesus is the one who holds the keys of David, uh, that what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He says in verse 118, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I was alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. But what are, what are the keys that he's talking about? Well, Jesus talks in Matthew 18 to Peter that he has given Peter the keys to the kingdom of God. Uh, we find the aspect of the keys is the keys to the kingdom. Uh, it is a key of authority and power. It is a key of entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. And God, it says in Second Peter, that he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Our God is a God who has keys, but he wants people to know his kingdom and to have access to it. But we also see this call to be strengthened. The strengthen. In verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up and strengthen what remains. There was a song by Bob Dylan uh, back in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, where he says, when you going to wake up? When you going to wake up? <laughs> Actually, it's from this particular passage from Revelation. And do the things uh, and strengthen what remains. It's, a, it's got some great lyrics. I'll let you look at that. But we are called to strengthen what remains. You know, Jesus is really concerned about strengthening those that are weak. Uh, he takes into consideration those that are struggling. He gives attention to faithful remnants. Uh, he seeks out and to strengthen those that are weak. It says in Genesis 6, The Lord saw the great wickedness on the earth, and he, that he was a, and, and he found Noah, a righteous man who found favor with the Lord. Uh, it says about Lot when he was about ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he looked at Lot and he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. Uh, when Elijah was fleeing from Jezebel for his life, he was depressed and thought that he was the only, only one, only faithful one to the Lord. But God said to him, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel for whose knees have not bowed. And so there's always this battered remnant. There's always a struggling, faithful group of, of believers that have held on, and God has a heart for them. God builds up the faith of the exiles. God is a God who comes to the broken believers, and he seeks out the lost, and he brings back the strays. You know, I think about how we're called to come alongside of those that are struggling in their faith. Um, when you're struggling, do you have somebody that you can call on that can just listen to your battles? Not judge you, not start condemning you, but just to receive your pain, your pain and your struggles. Do you have somebody like that? I hope that you do, and I hope that you can find that in this place. 
there is a, a great need to have such faithful friends. It's uh, an interesting passage in, in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus uh, is the illustration of Jesus healing the paralytic and the friends bring their paralytic friend and they open up the hole in the roof. And uh, in verse 20 of Luke 5 it says, when Jesus saw their faith, uh, and it talks about the faith of the paralytic's friends. Uh, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And so what we see is that we have, there are friends. Do you have faithful friends that will come alongside you to bring you to Jesus? That is such a critical need. And so Jesus, in this passage, reveals to us to strengthen that what remains. And he talks about those who have not soiled their clothes. We need to encourage each other in our faithfulness. But also we see the call to pursue the open doors. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, not denied my name. What we find here is that there are open doors. God has given us open doors. The phrase open door mentioned in the scripture is often a reference to the door of opportunity to extend good news of Christ to people and places that that have not been received before. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, the church of Antioch, after completing a missionary circuit among the unreached cities. And it says there, on arriving, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and now and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, it says, I will stay, Paul says, I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. And in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. And Colossians 4, 3, and pray for us that God may open a door for our message. The open door in Scripture is consistently the open door for extending good news to people to people far from God, the people who haven't really heard good news before. It is something God is passionate about, and he wants his people, he wants his church to see the open doors and to go through the open doors and to recognize the opportunities. This past, uh, actually, John Stott says this, the church urgently needs Christians of apostolic zeal who will count all things lost for Christ and hazard life comfort, career, reputation for him. The open doors are many, but there are few to go through them. (laughs) I have to tell you, going through, finding the open doors is a scary thing. Uh, It's scary. It's like, are you called to, like, step out in the deep? Like, you don't know if it's going to carry you. You know, you're, you're walking in spaces that are not really been walked before. They are paths that haven't been trod before. And so you really wonder, is this really a safe place for me? Well, do you believe in Jesus? I asked my wife this week, do you still believe all this stuff? Do you really believe in Jesus, like all these promises, what he's done, you know? Are you really ready to jump out into the deep with me again, this crazy man? 
So we don't, I mean, we don't know exactly what this is going to look like, this Baltimore Antioch thing that we're venturing into. Uh, it's not in existence at this point. It's a startup. It's like, is Jesus really for real? Is he really passionate for his kingdom to expand, to see leaders develop, churches planted? In my dark moments, I have a lot of wondering about it. But when I look at the history of the church and I look at the scriptures and I see what God has done, there's nothing I can do except pursue the open door. Uh, this past, uh, yesterday actually, I was, <coughs> I was uh, uh, Sarah Kennedy was working on getting everything ready uh, for the launch of uh, the uh, the, the summer program at Faith here, and, and I just asked her uh, about, you know, what are some ways that we can encourage the congregation to participate, and if there's anything else that uh, are needed, and, and I said, you know, I'm preaching about the open door, the open door of the gospel. I says, you know, so tell me, and then she actually sent me an email because she started thinking a lot about the open door, and this is what she said. I was thinking about what you said about open doors. I stopped by a neighbor's house this evening because she wanted to sign her daughters up for our summer program. She told me her girls always want to go to church. Even when they walk by, they just want to stop and go inside. She said they don't know that that's not how it works, that the doors are going to be locked. They want to go to church, even just to be in the building. I was struck by how she opened her house up to me, and even though she'd never met me. The girls showed me their pet turtles, and they reminded me so much of me and my sisters when we were young. Their family showed me hospitality, inviting me into their home, and my prayer is that our church has the same kind of hospitality to invite our neighbors in, and that God will grow in our church the kind of vibrancy where our doors can be open much of the time. Sarah goes on, she says, one of my favorite parts of our summer program is that I get to sit on the front steps of our church in the evenings and watch our building fill up with youth who are so eager to learn and grow together. The opportunities to be with our youth are so special to me. We get to share each other's lives, even in the small ways, sharing food together, reading a book, creating art, pursuing faith together. What an amazing opportunity that we can be close to with young people who are becoming the next leaders and artists and teachers. I don't think we always realize how precious that is. I remember doors that were open to me as a youth. Families who invited me to be part of their lives taught me about faithfully pursuing God and loving the people around me. I don't know where I would be today without that love and kindness and faithfulness. It reminds me how urgent, how vital it is to share life with the youth around me to grow together and provide opportunities for them to lead others and grow in their faith. The prayer of my heart, too, is for us to have open doors and open arms. That's the best part of this sermon. I said, you've given me <laughs> the best part of this message. Anyhow, uh, Sarah encourages, uh, they need reading buddies on Thursday nights. Uh, apparently, they've, anyhow, Five years ago, she and Kelly's uh, Zephyr were dreaming after God for what open door he's calling, and they're thinking through a plan, arts, faith kind of venture, and there were only five children. 
there are now over 40 that have expressed interest that are going to be part of this program this summer. But they need reading buddies for on Thursday night, families that can uh, tutor and come alongside of uh, another youth. Uh, snacks are always important, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings. They can be dropped off ahead of time. Carpooling. There's a problem with getting the kids here because our van only holds 15, and there's about 40. So if you're a family that's coming, and you could, like, bring another child, they have lists of names and locations where you can just take a few more minutes and just pick up a kid on, on the way. So thank you for having open hearts and open doors. The last point is to hold fast. Jesus says, hold fast. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall I go out. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven, from God out of heaven, and my, my own new name. You know, this, this, uh, what I love about this part of this passage is that he knows that the Philadelphia believers are weary, that they're tired, and they're exhausted, and they have little strength. Uh, they are battle-worn. Uh, they probably are somewhat disoriented. Maybe they've been beat up so many times, they just don't know how to go through this next open door. And so... Jesus helps to get them unstuck, and he gives them a picture of his soon-coming presence. And he talks about how he's going to honor them. You know, in Revelation, there's many places where the elders and the angels and the people are giving fame and glory and honor to the Son. The elders are falling down, and they're shouting, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and honor, wisdom, strength, and glory, and praise. And uh, we're all called up into that, and we're all called to give Jesus that. But in this passage, Jesus is talking about giving praise and honor to uh, someone else. Jesus says about those who overcome, those who pursue fellowship, the fellowship of the Spirit, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And he says in Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. To acknowledge, to acknowledge means to confess, to thank, to acknowledge openly and joyfully to one's honor, to celebrate, to give praise. What Jesus is saying that he is going to acknowledge those who profess his name. He is going to honor those who profess his name. He is going to praise those who acknowledge his name uh, in Psalm 62, my salvation and my honor depend on God. We are created as human beings with dignity. There's a drive in us for honor and glory. And Jesus says, your glory and your honor is all located in me. Many people are pursuing glory and honor that is not is fleeting in this world. But Jesus says, I have an eternal glory, an eternal honor, an eternal dignity, which is just for you. And so he says, I will write my name. He says, he says, I will write the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and I will write my new name. By the way, revelation means unveiling. There are some pictures of uh, 
a building here. Can you put those up, Andy? So some weeks ago, as you drove down York Road, uh, people, after that building was removed for the first time in 100 years, were actually able to see the edifice of this structure. Uh, because for a hundred years, uh, the Moran Funeral Home uh, had covered it with other trees. Uh, and so the next slide shows uh, our early morning shot. The next slide, uh, it's, it, was, it's kind of remark- it was kind of remarkable for the first time to actually see the visibility of this facility uh, when it has been hidden for a hundred years. And it just reminded me of the unveiling of the temple, the New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven as a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. And so there is an unveiling. Now, what's going to happen in the next probably 30 days, we're not going to see this building because this edifice is being built rather quickly. But there is an unveiling. The unveiling revelation is that God is going to reveal himself to all flesh. He is going to claim his bride. And it says that he is going to personally write the name of his God, the name of the city of his God, and his own new name on believers. Isn't that interesting? He's going to write his name on you, believer. And he's going to say, You're mine. You are mine. And we see that you are precious to him, and he's been thinking about you from all eternity, the scriptures remind us. And he's going to write his name on you, and you're going to know that. Um, One of the great themes in Toy Story, (laughs) the the trilogy of Toy Story, is that Andy and the Buzz Lightyear, and all the other toys that belong uh, to, uh, I mean, Andy, the, the little boy, have their, the name of Andy was written on the, sh- under, on the shoes, or somewhere on the, the, the toys. And the big theme in that was well, their value, and they were, there was all this insecurity around Christmas and birthdays, <laughs> because the new toys would come, and they are, their value and their being was threatened because they thought they were going to be in the toy heap, you know, thrown out to the next, uh, you know, uh, trash can or thrown into some kind of uh, value village, and, uh, and they would be lost. But the constant theme that Andy said or that Woody said was that, no, we're, we belong to, to Andy. We belong to him, and that is where our value is. That's who we are. But here's the thing. You belong to Jesus. As a believer, he has written his name on you, and you can have that security. If you are here today, and you long and you yearn for the identity of the eternal God who would love you and write his name on you, You don't have to do anything. You just have to say, Jesus, take me. I believe. I want you to be my Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us uh, these pictures of of this uh, 
in these letters to the revelations of the cities and the churches. Uh, Lord, there's a lot here, but we pray that you would remind us once again that you are our God, you are our loving Father, that, Lord, as our Father, you loved us so much that you gave your only Son. Uh, and, Lord, we pray that you would remind us today of this deep love that you will write your name on us and that we would live in that glory, uh, that we might be faithful to you, to be people of the opening doors for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.